0: welcome to our podcast where i keely severson eric johnson and alicia swami are exposing mold today we're talking about mental health and suicide there is a lot to unpack here a lot of people who become mold sick tend to become so depressed and a lot of us suffer from suicidal thoughts this is an especially concerning topic that's happening I can't name the doctor that we tried to speak to because we were not allowed to publish the interview. But we spoke with a psychiatrist who was documenting chronic fatigue syndrome with suicide. She was unwilling to look at the history of chronic fatigue syndrome to see that in her paper, she didn't use the term chronic fatigue correctly because it's not just being tired. It's a whole entire syndrome. And when you're not honest about what started the syndrome and then you're advocating to suicide patients for mental health, you're leaving out a whole environmental exposure that could be affecting their mental health and suicide. And it's really dangerous territory for these people, these mind-bodyists to be spreading the message that you need to have more gratitude if you're not happy in your life or if you feel like things are falling apart or if you wanna not end it have more gratitude, do your mantras. Let's have an honest conversation about the fact that toxic mold wants, makes you want to blow your brains out. Raise your hand if you felt suicidal living in mold. Have you guys? Oh, absolutely.
1: In my, my YouTube vlog, Homesick Healing in a Toxic Environment, I have a video of myself having weird, twisted feelings that I would never have. Ever. I've never been suicidal in my life. I'm a very happy person, very positive, very optimistic. And from the poisoning in my home, it made me want to kill myself. And I was by myself during that time calling my husband, like I'm having these weird thoughts. I don't know why. And
0: somehow it just passed. But these are the things that we deal with. So for the longest time, I thought something was wrong with me. Like I I honestly bought into the mental health stigma of I'm depressed, I have anxiety, I'm obviously just an ungrateful loser because I can't pull myself out of this rut, and I never knew how my environment could be causing me to feel that way. Eric, if, if I've heard him say this once, I've heard him say it 10 times. 50 years ago, nurses used to know that depression was from lack of oxygen or hypoxia. Now they're calling it brain chemistry dysfunction with no test to even prove what the brain chemistry dysfunction is. It's really concerning to see chronic fatigue syndrome be framed as a psychiatric illness. Eric, I know that you've been in this game for a long time and you've seen a lot of people end their lives because they couldn't get the help that they needed. Try not to get emotional. I have lost a close friend to suicide, so this is like, this is a topic that hits. The story I remember you telling Eric was of a gentleman who was guided in the indoor air quality groups and had basically been given this whole runaround and he thought he had done everything right and he was still very, very sick and he didn't see any other way out and he ended his life. Would you tell that story
2: Oh, wow. I can't right now recall which particular one you're referring to. There've been so many. Yeah, that would be um, Robert Harrington. Back in 2006, when I was fighting with the uh, chronic fatigue syndrome research groups, telling them about Dr. Shoemaker's work as desperation medicine and my own experience with mold at uh, ground zero for chronic fatigue syndrome. This advocate Essentially, bought into the idea that it might be mold, not just chemicals in general. Started looking into this, and they tried to get him to do the air filters and the supplements and the brain retraining and all that usual garbage. And finally, he just up and um, spent a couple of weeks out in the desert and felt better than he had in years. So he thought he was really onto something. He went back to his trailer all energized, thinking that he has a plan he's going to remediate. He's going to uh, rip all the mold out of his trailer and fix his life. And he crawled under his trailer and found the bottom of the trailer had been sealed with plastic, visqueen, and it was sagging down. There was water. I don't know if it was from the roof or from a leak inside, but it had filled the complete bottom of his trailer such that the plastic underneath was sagging down, weighted with water. And he called me up and um, asked me what to do. And I said, Whatever you do, don't cut into that. Don't disturb the mold. Don't go near it. You know, get somebody else to do it. You're sensitized. It was too late. He went into there and all this moldy water spilled out. And he got hit with the blast of mold. And he just went psychotic. He said it was like he was on LSD, hallucinating the worst thing he ever felt in his life. And I said, you got to get out of there. And he went, he had been staying away from his trailer at a hotel and he started driving toward the hotel and about halfway there, he just gave up. He turned around, went back to his trailer and committed suicide. So he basically discovered the problem, found a way out, but then was hit with mold so badly while in intensification, when you become unmasked and you're super sensitive and you're especially vulnerable and he got slammed and it was too much for him. But in this group, as he had been working towards trying to discover the, the mold factor, he'd been posting about it, saying that he had discovered other people in groups, mold groups with chronic fatigue syndrome who had gotten better by mold avoidance and he could not get them to be interested in it. And he finally wrote one of the last messages he wrote before crawling under his trailer, was I told them about the mold, Eric told them about the mold, now it's up to them to listen. And this was back in 2006, and the top most prominent advocates and researchers were in this group, and they all watched this happen, Rich Van Kaninenberg said, oh, the poor guy, I wish he had gotten to see Dr. Shoemaker before it was too late. And Rich Van Kaninenberg is the same guy who got a mold education from the Lawrence Livermore researcher that I did in 1997. So he was completely familiar with the tricothecine toxic mold effect, and he wouldn't tell anybody about it. This is the doctor who Dr. Neil Nathan said he learned about methylation from. So Dr. Nathan is studying with the guy who knows all about toxic mold, knows all about the suicides that are happening happening from toxic mold what happened did dr did uh, rich and caninenberg not pass this on to dr nathan did dr nathan feel that this was unworthy of research i don't know what the heck they're doing but yeah uh, i've been watching for years people who got up to the point where they had a clue they had a way out but they didn't know the ins and outs of mold avoidance so they wound up committing suicide anyway
1: what would you say is one misstep people often do when they're avoiding mold
2: well an earlier chronic fatigue or cfids advocate named jim leroy was writing articles about multiple chemical sensitivity in cfids back in the middle 90s and he was blaming like so many of them do toxic soup all of them in general because once you're sensitized it feels like you're being slammed by everything and you don't know which way to turn. So he wrote really good articles on how to try to clean up your environment, limit your chemical sensitivities, remove anything that is suspect. And he talks about particle board, old furniture. I mean, he's describing contaminated things without understanding the special characteristics of toxic mold, which contaminates like nothing else we've ever heard of. So by... uh, 1999, he was starting to just barely get a clue about toxic mold. But unfortunately, it is so overwhelming when you blame toxic soup and you get all these exposures, it's, it's uncontrollable. You, you don't feel like you've got a way out. And he ultimately in 1999, same thing, he committed suicide. And I think the number one mistake is blaming toxic soup. Because when you look at when people acquired these chemical sensitivities, none of these factors that they're pointing at, the formaldehyde, the pesticides, the air fresheners, the things that they're pointing at didn't really change. What changed was mold started growing. And the difference with me is I realized that all these other things being equal, something about the mold was special. So I focused on that thanks to my military training realized the contamination potential and how to decontaminate from it. And by focusing on this one thing and ignoring all the rest, I couldn't do a thing about all my other responses to formaldehyde or pesticides or driving behind a diesel truck. But I took like a leap of faith that the toxic mold was the critical factor, the primary sensitizing agent focused on that and that alone is what worked. So the biggest mistake people make is failure to realize that there is one critical thing that can make all the difference.
1: So those who are in a situation where they feel like no matter what they do, they can't get away from it, what should they do for those people who are extremely, extremely sensitized?
2: Well, the mold hiatus, the uh, camping trip out to the desert is where most people unmask and realize it's not just toxic soup. There are things that stand out as special. And they point at these things. They go, there it is. It's on this object. And it's, it's an object that came out of a house. And that house was moldy. And unfortunately, that's where it stops a lot of the time. So I feel that uh, all I can really do is say, hey, if you follow the chain of events, back to the toxic mold, you can get clues that tell you that there is something special for you to focus on. But other than that, I can't really advise people because as long as they're stuck in the toxic super mentality, they don't have a specific direction to go and no real effective means of controlling it.
1: Yeah, that's what I usually seem to... See, with people that reach out to me, they're always in a frenzy, like, I don't know what to do, I don't know how to control this. I really try to tell them to just like listen to their body if they're feeling really bad in a certain location, then you need to leave. But for some people, they're so trapped in this bubble of convenience that they're afraid, they're actually afraid of being in a pristine location. I don't know how to break that fear for them, but I feel like, Eric, you've had probably so much experience with this over the years of people reaching out to you, being afraid of doing that. Was there anything that you think that or any advice that you've given them that actually helps them break out of that fear?
2: Yeah, sometimes certain people are open-minded enough to realize that there is an experiment they can try, and they'll go ahead and do it. But I can't really predict which kind of personality will make that leap and others that will go, we'll just forget it, not going to. I don't know what makes one person open their mind and another person close it when presented with the same exact scenario, uh, but there it is. I would like to say, though, that uh, just as Keely pointed out, the uh, mind bodyists are absolutely devastating to people going through this. They are devastating because they try to convince you that you can control this using the power of the mind, and of course it doesn't work, And when people try and fail, it just reinforces to them that they must be a weak person, that they must be inferior, there's something wrong with them, they're not taking control of the illness the way a positive person would, and this only makes them feel like they're unworthy, unable, and inferior. And really, if you look at how these chemicals act on the brain, you can't help but be depressed. You're supposed to be depressed. That's the point of uh, why the body why the brain responds the way it does to toxins. It's the brain's way of telling you, get out, run. This is terrible, it's killing you. You feel like death, get out of here. You're supposed to feel like that. Now, a normal rational human or an animal ought to respond to that and go, I feel like death here, I think I'll try somewhere else.
0: Yeah, Alicia and I and and you were talking in our group chat about how illness has become normalized and You were alive at a time where you saw the normalization of illness start to progress, where Alicia and I were born into it. So we had no frame of reference for like getting depressed, not being something wrong with our brain chemistry. I mean, I think I was like a teenager when all those commercials started coming out on TV. And I thought, oh, gosh, that's what's wrong with me. Like they're they're solving my problem. And doctors, when, when, you, when people go in fo- to report anxiety or depression, doctors are not doing anything to screen for environment. They're not asking, have you had a leak? Are you living in a damp place? Is there water damage? There's no screening happening. They hand those pills out like they're Pez candy. And I was just reading recently that those medications, Alicia, did you send that article that those medications are like major cause of violence?
1: No, I probably did. I know I'm sending
0: you guys information all the time. SSRIs are being reported as like a high cause of violent behavior because they're manipulating brain chemistry.
2: Yeah, Dr. Cheney was big on warning about that. He goes, These brain chemicals, they're dangerous. They have long-term effects, they'll mess you up. He warned specifically about antidepressants, and he wasn't really huge on this low-dose naltrexone and you know, various things that are going to mess around with brain chemistry, he was looking for a cause. He was an impressive guy, and I'm sorry he didn't focus in on the mold. But you brought up a, a term, a good word that uh, I hadn't thought about in a long time, inculcate. How the shift in the paradigm, the mold experts inculcated, they instilled a climate of this is normal. This is how, oh, it's just water leaks. There's nothing unusual going on here. There was such a huge shift back in the 1970s from the concept that your house is your haven, it's your refuge, you have the place to go. If there's pollution outside, you go inside your house. And all of a sudden that started to change. And people seem to have forgotten the time when it was so unusual to think of your house as being dangerous, that if there was anything inside a house that made you feel ill, You went in there and you found out what it was and you did not rest. You did not stop until you removed it. So when the mold experts started saying, well, mold is everywhere and there's all kinds of molds, so you don't really have to worry about them and you can fix it with an air filter. They created this belief that these toxins from the molds are easily fixed. And as time went along, they weren't so easily fixed. Remember the spray bleach and forget? That's how it was. That's that's the way it used to be. If you had a mold problem, you sprayed bleach on it and forgot about it, or you didn't even have to do that. Just put a fan on it. You could dry it out. Mold was not a problem. There was no documentation, no recorded instances of mold being a really nasty factor prior to the 1980s. And then something changed. People started pointing at it left and right. And to me, that says, well, let's look at the mold. Did it change? And in the 1994 Saratoga Springs Proceedings Manual, that's the title of the chapter. Chapter Stachybotrys atra, which is what Stachybotrys charterum was called back in those days, is the clinical picture changing? So many people are complaining about it. Is it changing? Well, What they found is if they tested people who were exposed to Stachybotrys, the parameters of this were not really necessarily different from what you would expect with a lab animal that was exposed. So they go, their conclusion was the clinical picture isn't changing. The toxic mold is doing what a toxin does. It's making people sick in exactly the predicted way. But what changed was the environmental aspect of it. The relationship where we began to associate this with buildings, whereas it never had been before. In the veterinary literature, Stachybotrys, the toxic mold, was only something that happened to animals and only by ingestion. And that completely changed and turned into a sick building inhalation problem. That is a major, major paradigm shift. And all the people that I saw in the proximity and exposure to this toxic mold, they lit up with chemical sensitivities, pointed at everything, everything around them, formaldehyde, carpet fumes, uh, perfume. It didn't matter what it was. They pointed at that because they didn't know anything about toxic mold and no amount of explaining to them, those chemicals did not increase. Nothing about it changed. They weren't bothering you before, but they are now. What did change is this darn black mold started growing. So I highly suggest we look into the mold and why it's an inhalation problem now when it didn't used to be.
0: You know, I think that's a really good warning to the multiple chemical sensitivity community because... When we do speak with people who have MCS, it doesn't seem like they do point to mold as what sensitized them to other chemicals. They think because chemicals are bothering them, that was just the problem. And we, we see a lot of people that have been sensitized to chemicals from mold doing, doing the damage. But the reason I'm making the connection for this specific topic is because that's another population that's written off as being site cases. You know, they're often just told that they're crazy because they're not understood. Now, if we could, if we could kind of circle back to chronic fatigue syndrome and the definition and how, um, how, how was it that the insinuation and the subtle shift of blaming, of, of generating the thoughts... How did people start blaming mental health for chronic fatigue syndrome? How did that transition happen is what I'm trying to ask.
2: Well, actually, this is a carryover from uh, HIV AIDS days. In the early days of the uh, AIDS crisis, <laughs> these very same people, the mind bodyists the nutritionizers, the, um, you know, you can cure it using you know better uh, dietary interventions and mind body strategies they were all the same people. I mean, not just the same thoughts, the very same people. <laughs> they were trying to apply this to HIV AIDS. And they would say, yes, if you have a perfectly sound state of mind, and take care of yourself, you know, eat right, you can beat this mystery syndrome, this, this AIDS. And of course, every time one of their followers died, it was like, oh, too bad, I guess they failed to follow my procedure. If they had, they would have been cured. So they're killing people left and right, watching them drop, and every time, it's like, well, that was a fluke, but that doesn't call my theory into question. And as soon as the uh, HIV virus was discovered, and it turns out, no, mind-body isn't gonna get you out of this, that was about the same time when chronic fatigue syndrome came along. You know, the same, same time period in the mid-1980s. And they simply switched their focus from AIDS to chronic fatigue syndrome. Same people. And so I, uh, I was concerned about this. And I wanted to ward these, these interlopers off before they got a foothold in the new chronic fatigue syndrome. And part of my goal in volunteering to serve as a prototype for this syndrome was to put a dead stop to these people. I, I really believed when I volunteered to help start this syndrome that we had enough evidence with the immune abnormalities, with the circumstantial evidence, that we could stop these people in the tracks before they dominated the field. But unfortunately, the chronic fatigue syndrome community, all the EBV groups that switched their name to chronic fatigue syndrome, they didn't look into our evidence. They didn't study our circumstances. They didn't find out enough of why chronic fatigue syndrome was created to have a sound evidential basis to stop these psychologizers. So they did the same thing. They dominated the field and completely made chronic fatigue syndrome look like a mental problem.
1: Well, I just want to make some connections and maybe speculate here. I mean, throughout this pandemic, like mental health has been such a huge problem like these mental health professionals are through the roof with appointments. And I almost wonder, I mean, we had to spend how long in our homes. And then you think about how many people have issues with their homes. I wonder if people are mentally having issues because of the extended time that they are spending in their homes. I mean, we're We're seeing an explosion of people committing suicide and even children. You know, I've spoken to a Mayo Clinic nurse who told me their pediatric unit is just filled with children on watch, on suicide watch. And so, I mean, I don't have hard evidence for this, but it almost makes me wonder with the issues that we're having with climate change, massive flooding happening all over the place water damage, like how many people are actually mentally ill because of their homes and not because of the circumstances that we're dealing with with COVID?
2: Well, this is where I go back to the academic insanity. Because if you talk to any doctor, they will say, well, you have no proof. You have no peer-reviewed evidence. You've got no studies showing that what you're saying might actually be true. So they have no mental means of working the problem and and finding an answer to that whereas if you are a hypersensitive person you have no problem finding this out at all you just accompany people into their houses and go oh yeah your your house is kind of bad and i can tell that you're having some issues some mental issues that are consistent with this kind of exposure so i can strongly suspect that you are being affected adversely let's go camping And you go camping and you find out that they feel terrific and their mental health is better than it's been in years. So in your mind, as a hypersensitive person, the theory has been confirmed. And then now just go try to tell a doctor about that and they will shut you down cold. So we can can actually study this quite easily so long as we rely on hypersensitive people to give us maybe not the most accurate information, but some good clues. But that is something the academic mind simply will not tolerate
1: probably 99.999% guarantee that no mental health worker, psychiatrist, psychologist is screening their patients for environmental issues.
2: Well, we asked the uh, researchers when covid emerged, well, you know the chronic fatigue syndrome it really happened after a flu-like illness. We're not sure of what flu it was, but it was a powerful flu-like illness, and it left people damaged and unable to tolerate chemicals and mold. So we suspected the same thing going to happen with this COVID virus, this coronavirus. So why don't you start screening people for environmental exposures? And they turned a deaf fear to our request. They refused. They, they didn't actually refuse. They just turned around and walked away, and we see no signs that they're actually doing so. So we're just repeating history again. They are refusing to act like doctors and try to look at the whole picture, no matter how many times they try to say they want to dig deeper, that they want to get to the root of the illness, that they're sincere and dedicated. We're not seeing signs of this.
1: I really wonder how many COVID long haulers are just mold illness.
2: It would be a simple matter to just locate people who are mold sensitive and send them into the houses and then we could get a, a rough idea. Simple as that. So the problem here is not that we have no avenue to explore, it's that we can't connect with the academic mind. We can't get researchers to listen to us.
1: Thank you everyone for joining us today. It was a, an interesting conversation regarding mold and mental health. Also talking about the toxic soup idea that is spreading like wildfire with the new mold, I'm sorry, not mold experts. You know, we're not against the new information, but I definitely think that we should not miss the mark on mold. And we should definitely look into that even further and understand that, yeah, that is a major problem not a tiny sliver bit of the problem as we understand that mold is a major immune suppressor those are just some things to think about please like share and comment on our content we really love hearing from you and what you think Please let us know if you like the content that we're coming out with and what you'd like to see in the future. Definitely encourage that so we know who to reach out to to bring on the show and talk about your pressing issues. Also, please check out our GoFundMe and Patreon pages. We have amped up our Patreon page, so please check that out. We'll see you guys next time. Thanks for joining us.